2: Before this week's podcast, I've got some exciting news to share with everyone. I've started a Patreon site. Now, on there are brand new video podcasts so you can see me and lots more besides. It's a general hub, I hope, for fans of history, fans of archaeology, travel enthusiasts. I suppose, above all else, it's for all-round admirers of an open-minded approach to life to love and everything in between. It's about seeing how the lessons of history, the glimpses we catch of the past, can help us to find comfort and navigate our way through the confusion of the modern world. To join and get access, all you have to do is sign up. You can find Neil Oliver on the Patreon website. Follow the links on this podcast or on the Neil Oliver Love Letter Instagram. You'll help to support this podcast as well as getting exclusive access to the new video podcasts. I must say and stress that the Love Letter to the British Isles is and always will be free. In the meantime, here's this week's Love Letter to the British Isles. Cue the music. And there's so much feeling, human feeling manifest in there because you can see it. And I defy anyone to go there and be in the presence of where fellow human beings have expressed need or sought help and not be moved by it. In this podcast, we're setting foot in a magical glen, an enchanted space created by nature, shimmering with crystal clear waters and cliffs coated and cloaked with rich moss and ferns A place whose powerful presence has drawn people to it for millennia. Rich with stories, hopes and beliefs. This is one of the places in which our ancestors invented the future. I'm stepping out across Britain to discover 100 remarkable places that have shaped you, me and the whole world. I'm Neil Oliver and this is my love letter to the British Isles.
0: Hi Neil. Last week you took us to the top of a mountain to survey all the kingdoms which sit within the archipelago of the British Isles. Where are we now?
2: Well this week's a bit different uh, in that we're going somewhere that's far more hidden Uh, far harder to stumble upon to one of those enchanted places that have a real aura a presence it's the sort of place that somehow manages to stop you in your tracks and invites you to think over thousands of years it's become a deep reservoir of human hopes and dreams it's St. Necton's Glen the love letter Today comes from St. Necton's Glen in Truthevy, which is in Cornwall. Specifically, it's between the towns of Boss Castle and Tintagel. Boss Castle is the place that always floods. You know, they have those terrifying floods. You know, you see cars getting swept down the street, that kind of thing. That's Boss Castle. They're quite often the the unfortunate victims of that natural phenomenon. Uh, And Tintagel is the castle that for many people is associated with Arthur. But while those are quite famous, St Nickton's Glen will not be. It will be known to some who've had the good fortune to be directed to it or to, or to stumble upon it, but it's nowhere near being as on the beaten track as the other two, and that's that's part of what makes it special. This is one of the locations, one of the places for which I would write a love letter, that really I only know about it because I was taken. You know, I simply wouldn't have found it. People living nearby will know about it, but you'd really have to be told because it's hidden, literally. It's not the kind of place that a person would would likely happen upon. St. Necton was a 5th century Christian. Uh, obviously, because he's living and dying in the 400s, so very early in the story of Christianity in England, there's a lot of myth and legend woven around him. And it's called St. Nectan's Glen because legend has it that he built for himself a little cell there so that he could be alone with his god. He was supposedly born in Wales. He was the son of a king, which is to say King Brythan, which is one of those names that sounds suspiciously like Britain. But he was born in Wales, but his family had come across from Ireland at some point. Across the Irish Sea and had settled in Wales, and Nectan was born there. Let's just say that he was born into a well-to-do family Born into power But he um, took his, his inspiration to become a follower Of this burgeoning, rising new religion of Christianity From Anthony the Great And Anthony the Great is one of the I think it's probably fair to call him one of the church fathers He was one of those who went out into the desert of Egypt To live the life of a hermit the rise of the solitary life, being alone with your God, in the most spare and difficult circumstances, a life of the utmost simplicity, became a trend. And Anthony the Great was one of those, you know, who went out into the wastes, as Jesus had done, you know, that sort of you know, forty days and forty nights in the wilderness. There was an idea that if you wanted to get close to God, or closest to God, that was one way to go about it. So Anthony and some of his followers Lived like that in the desert Scraping a living And worshipping and thinking And Necton heard about this as as an inspiration And decided that he would do likewise So he led a small group of followers And according to the story They got aboard a boat Let's imagine something pretty simple A sort of a You know, a a Curragh type Simple seagoing vessel Maybe with a sail, but small And they, according to Necton's instructions, they just let it drift so that they would be taken wherever. And the story goes that having left South Wales, they drifted across the Bristol Channel and they came upon North Devon specifically to to a place called Hartfield. So the boat kind of comes ashore there and they take that as their their message. You know we had that bit about Durham Cathedral where the the wandering monks, you know, the the wheel came off their wagon at Chesterley Street and they took it as a sign. Well, same sort of thing. They had Necton and his, and his men had put themselves into the hands of God and their, their wee boat washed up at Hartfield. And so they lived there for a while in the forest or, or in, woodland, in woodland there, living presumably what would look to us like a miserable existence, but maybe they were ecstatic on account of the faith that they felt inspired by. But that wasn't enough for Necton. And eventually he wanted to be more alone, more desolate. And so he wandered and he found this glen, this Glen in Trithevi. And it's a very narrow, uh, steep-sided slit in the rock, basically, cut by a river. There's a river there now. There will always have been a river there. The, the river is sort of foundational to, to to why it's there and what it is. And he built this little hut, let's say, a little simple dwelling, and he stayed there. And so for, forever after, it became associated with Necton, and it's now St. Necton's Glen. But, it's one of those places, like Iona, which I would suggest was special to people and revered long before Christianity. Christianity gets in there because that was part of the technique of Christianity. You know, to pay attention to places that were already of spiritual significance to to communities and populations and to piggyback on it. And maybe it's not quite as cold and calculated as that sounds, but, but there may have been some kind of interplay between what places are special to you. And maybe it was a clearing in the woods or a glen or whatever. And they would say, well, we bring something special, so would it be all right if our special place was was in that location? It might not have been cynical. There might have been a desire to, to go where the spirit felt strong. So a place like St Necton's Glen would be, in all likelihood, where he was wanting to maybe get in amongst the community, maybe spread the message. He would say, what places matter to you? And direct them to this place that had been special to them because it's a work of nature. It's just the most beautiful, magical location. It's the sort of place that you'd want to go into and climb and, and splash in the water and, and listen to the waterfall. And, and it's where you know other kids would want to imagine a fairy glen and they would like to imagine it being inhabited by magical creatures. It's got all of that, it's steep The rock walls are covered in moss Ferns grow Um, This river that comes into it It comes in in the form of a waterfall So there's this tumbling silver ribbon of water And it's associated with St Nectin's Keeve And keeve is a local word for a bowl or a bucket So it's a natural formation And the water gathers in this rock formation And then through the millennia a hole has been worn in the side and the water comes out again. So it fills the bowl and then it flows out through the hole and then finally it it gathers in this very shallow, wide pool. A magical-looking, peaceful pool of water. But you have to imagine everything's on a small scale. It's It's a very small space. And so the water gathers there and we know that people have been going there since a time beyond the reach of memory. And you can see for yourself that people still go there today. Because when you go to St Necton's Glen now, it's so affecting. For one thing, there's a tradition that people, when they visit, they build what are called fairy stacks, where people gather a handful of little flat stones, the sort of stones you'd use for skimming. So they pile them sort of largest up to smallest little pyramid shapes, and and they build them on the water's edge, just where the pond starts so you'll go and you'll see these fairy stacks sometimes hundreds of them dotted about that people make to show they've visited but then people also bring mementos so if you look around as your eyes get accustomed you'll see that there are like children's toys like a teddy bear or or a little cartoon character or whatever tied by string maybe to the branches of a a bush or to a tree or photographs, snapshots of, of loved ones mums and dads children, relatives and these are pinned up and they're just, everything's gradually being consumed by the dampness so some of the photographs are recent enough that you can still see them and others have obviously been there long enough that they've just faded away and been eroded away to to blanks you see also where people have scratched names into the rock and sometimes it's heartbreakingly simple, things like mum and a cross for a kiss and everything about it suggests that or reveals, really, that St Necton's Glen is somewhere that people go in time of need. You know, you're talking about people going, maybe when they've lost someone, the loss of a parent or a grandparent, or maybe it's the loss of a child, and they've gone to the Glen in hopes of, of some kind of solace that is otherwise not available in the modern world. And it's, it, it, it's heart-breaking and also uplifting to be in St Nectin's Glen, to be in the presence of where people have gone in a time of need. And we're, we're well, in inverted commas, sophisticated modern people. We've got all the science and all the medicine and all the, all the technology that a person could wish for. And yet evidently there are times and there are circumstances in which people find themselves where none of that gives them the help that they need. And as, and as it turns out, the help thereafter isn't to be found in a church or a mosque or a temple. They need to go and they're drawn to places that are just made special by nature. And I'm not trying to explain it or to say it's the, that there's any point in doing it or that there's no point in doing it. I'm not saying that at all, but you can see that a place like St Nectans Glen draws people in need. And they express that need in that time-honoured way, which is to say that they make an offering. Now, we as a species, we are alone in the universe, it would appear, or certainly alone on the planet, in being preoccupied by time. At some point in the past of our species, we woke up to consciousness. We became aware in a way that's unique, in a way that isn't experienced by dogs or giraffes or fish or anything else, or not even by chimpanzees and gorillas, our nearest relatives. We are conscious in a unique way. And a a collateral gift or problem that comes with consciousness is a preoccupation with the idea that there was a time before us before we existed, each of us as individuals and as a species collectively, and that there will be a time after which we are gone, as individuals and as a species. This is a state of being, a state of mind that is unique to us, as far as we can tell. And it preoccupies us. We think about it all the time. We're the only species that makes history, that keeps a record, that writes things down and says, this happened then. And we refer back to the past. And also we look to the future. Nothing else looks to the future in the way that we do. And we take the future for granted. You think, well, there'll be a tomorrow and a next year. And at a time like this, when everyone's so troubled with the virus, you know, people are desperately looking ahead. For example, you know, looking, hoping that the future will come sooner rather than later, and more to the point that it will be better than the present that we're living through at the moment. Now, thinking like that is perhaps the most profoundly important concept that our species has ever had, the realisation that there's a future world. Nothing else does that, but we make preparations in the form of offerings. We've talked about it in the case of Hlenwaur, where people were putting metalwork in the lake, and in other contexts besides the Dover boat... That was deliberately scuttled, sunk Something of great value and great utility Was given back to the world Now, we take the future for granted But at some point in the past Our ancestors had to come up with it as an idea And once they realised that the future existed So to speak They subsequently realised that perhaps There were things that they could do to make the future kind Maybe they could make offerings to the future So that when it arrived It would repay them for the offerings that they had made. And that's that's in part why people have been doing these things, throwing swords into lakes and rivers, and offering up human sacrifice, offering up burnt offerings, giving things away, things you need now, you give away in the hope that when the future comes, it will remember that you did that and it will be kind to you. And perhaps probably most significantly in the modern world, what we sacrifice is our own time. You know, parents give up their time now for the benefit of their children. You slog through the working day in the hope that you can make the future a better place for your children. You know, it's all it's all about that idea of working towards the future. And and to go and see that instinct or that understanding of that concept of the future and how it might be shaped in our benefit is stripped back to the simplest form in a place like St. Nectan's Glen. You see where people are going in and and it's almost as though they're just coming and standing in front of the reality of the planet. It's a cleft, an opening in the world itself and they stand there in the presence of a river that's coming at them like time. It's coming out of the future and it's passing them by and it's going into the past and in such a place they offer. Maybe people go there when a child is ill, and they're desperate for a cure, hoping that whatever therapy they're having will will work. Uh, And as well as putting their trust in modern medical science, they go to somewhere like St Nickton's Glen, and they build a little pile of stones, or they offer up a, a crystal or a little teddy bear, as though to say, be kind to my child, let the future be kind to my child. And I've come here on a pilgrimage. I'm I'm giving of myself and of my own time here, offering up something as well, some token, some memento. I just find it a profoundly moving place to go and to see and to understand that people continue to think in that way. You see in it as well the foundations of what came next. People seeking to affect the future and to ask the future to be kind. First of all, they were going to places like natural features in the landscape, to the sea, to a beach, or to a waterfall, or a clearing in the forest, somewhere that they knew that maybe animals gathered sometimes and that seemed to have some kind of power to draw. That idea was then developed enormously Rather than just settle for places that were natural, people began to make places. So they built tombs to collect the bones of their dead. And they raised circles of stone, man-made places to go and gather. And then they started to build churches and temples and the rest of the special places. But people go to those places, to the grandest cathedral, to express essentially the same urge that that motivated people to go to St. Necton's Glen thousands of years ago. They're going there in search of something, some kind of comfort. And to me, I try to be mindful of how much we've complicated our lives. I'm aware of a lot of anxiety. I'm constantly anxious and stressed. And I know it. You know, I can feel the cortisol... (laughs) <laughs> Hormone <laughs> coursing through my system all the time. I'm so anxious and I'm, I'm aware of it. And I try to think, or I, or I pay attention to the possibility that maybe we do it to ourselves with all the 24 hour news, all the data, all the websites, and, and constantly flicking through Twitter and Facebook and WhatsApp, constantly del- you know, we're standing under a waterfall of, of technology. And I wonder the extent to which that is making us anxious, that our anxiety is man-made, that it's a product of, you know, we've reached out in search of information, but now we've got too much of it. And I find it extremely affecting that people still go to somewhere like St. Nickham's Glen, where all of that's stripped away. I mean, I said talked last week about Durham Cathedral, and I, I love being in cathedrals. I love being inside churches. Especially when they're empty. You know, I, I love it when I find a, you know, some little parish church in the countryside somewhere and you go and you try the door and it's open. And you go in and there's no one there. And you can just sit. Just sit and walk about. Those places have that power to deliver that something that so many people are asking for. And when you go to somewhere like St Necton's Glen, you're just in the presence of somewhere that presumably people went looking there for some kind of help. 100,000 years ago and they're still going there now if you go to St Nectan's Glen today you'll see it the physical evidence of people of the 21st century who realise that there's nowhere left for them except that cleft in the rock where a waterfall fills a stone bowl They go there. They go there for help. And that we still, as a species, some of us make that connection with the source of help in the natural world, I think says something profound about us. And I find the survival of that instinct personally reassuring.
0: Is it that places like this have the power to recharge your batteries?
2: Yeah, well, it's that. It's also that... I've been there when I've had the place to myself and I've also been there when there's been a few other people moseying about and some people are obviously just there as like sightseers really just sort of visiting the place but from time to time you know that people are there because they're doing the thing they're there asking for something or seeking for something so whether or not you go and there are other people as it were making use of the glen or whether you go there and you have the place to yourself, you still see the the evidence in front of you. And I think there's a sense of community. Because even if you go and the place is empty, when you look around and you see the faded photographs, and you see the little tokens and trinkets, objects contain absent people. That's um, Julian Barnes in Metroland. towards the the end of that novel there's a line where he says objects contain absent people and I'm haunted by that line it's only four words but it's true so you go to St Necton's Glen and there are these trinkets and every single one of them represents a fellow human being in a time of need and it's quite something to stand there surrounded by that because those absent people who are represented there by those teddy bears and crystals and photographs and names scratched in the wall? They've left something of themselves behind. Need, a call for help, or a or a giving of thanks. Who knows? But to to stand there, it, it's almost like the place drips with the energy f- from people. It's different. I mean, you can get someone like me. I can I can get sort of I do I acknowledge that I get I get carried away with my imagination about these places, but it just seems to me that, be it a chamber tomb or a church or a glen or, or a place, it just seems to me that when people go there, they leave something behind. It's almost like there's a reservoir of humanity in places like that. Because we're all in this life together. We're all, we're all here for this short time, and we, we inevitably all experience the same things one way or another. Whatever is going on in your life just now, even supposing everything's tickety-boo, either it has been bad or inevitably there will be pain, there will be loss, you know, there will be illness for you or for some of those close to you. Those experiences are inevitable and they are all part of what it is to be human and alive. And there are places in the landscape, some of them made by us, but some of them just the work of nature, where people go and it almost feels as though they leave behind some charge, some electrical, some fading electrical energy or like the weak power of an old magnet to still draw. You can feel it. And there's thousands of them. And every single person alive in the British Isles will have a place somewhere they go that means something to them. And the presence of all these special places is just like lights in the sky. You know, it's like lights in the firmament and I just try to pay attention to the ones that that seem to matter to me.
0: It's a wonderful idea that places like this are scattered all over the British Isles. Yeah, there's a
2: lovely... It's not unique to the Celts because other populations express the same. But in the Celtic tradition, there's a talk about thin places, thin places in the landscape, which is to say people where the ancestors believed the separation between this reality and other realities was rather than a stone wall that was like Gossamer. There were places where another universe or the next world was close and that the separation between the here and now and something else was thin. So the Celts have a, have a tradition of talking about thin places but I, I mean I've been in, I've been in New Zealand and spent time with Maori elders for example I mean one one example amongst many and the Maori will tell you that there are places in New Zealand that, and they don't use the word thin but when they describe the very slight separation in certain places between now and something that they can't see but that they are convinced that they can sense, They're expressing the same emotion. Now, we're we're discouraged from thinking like that. You know, science and reason and and rational thought and all the rest of it discourage that kind of thinking. But it's there. To me, it's important to acknowledge that it's there. You know, the, the thirst that from the soul doth rise doth ask a drink divine. Whether we acknowledge it or not, and whether we tell each other that it's a good thing or not, For many people, there is a sense that they have of something that they can't see, but that they can feel. And for many of those people, they get in touch with that feeling in certain locations in the landscape. Now, the Celts called them thin places, but many, many people will have a place in the landscape that they can go to that makes them feel better and it just does and there's no i see no point and no benefit in denying it or ridiculing it or seeking to dismiss it and you go to somewhere like st Necton's glen it's a tiny little slot in the landscape and there's so much feeling human feeling manifest in there cuz you can see it you know it's not always in these places that people leave behind things that are like physical proof of the of the emotions that they went through while they were there but st Necton's glen is definitely one of them And I defy anyone to go there and be in the presence of where fellow human beings have expressed need or sought help and not be moved by it just at the basic human level. Because we're all the same animal and we're the same animals that we've been for the last 200,000 years. Cognitively, physiologically, we are the same animals. We have the same emotions, the same mental capacities and we're driven by the same basic needs and wants. And in a place like St. Necton's Glen, you see it. A glowing tower, watching over the Reed Lichtes and their ships. The richest abbey in Scotland, a building where a document was drafted that would resonate around the world. A declaration holding the celebrated King Robert the Bruce to account. Powerful words on paper. Nothing less than the assertion of democracy. Next time in my love letter to the British Isles. Check out Neil Oliver Love Letter, the podcast's Instagram account. And to ensure you get each new episode of the podcast as it goes live don't forget to subscribe write a review and share with your friends For further reading about these favourite destinations of mine you could try my book It's called The Story of the British Isles in 100 Places and it's published by Transworld Neil Oliver's Love Letter to the British Isles is produced by Paul Ratcliffe and Neil Oliver for Fat Belly Films Music is by Malcolm Goldie Social media producer is Oscar CFR. Additional research is by Evie, Lucian, Archie and Teddy. Finance is by Catherine and Trudy. Post-production is by Althorpe Studios. And the graphics are by Paul Plowman. And special thanks to the people across history who have made and continue to make these aisles such an incredible place. This has been an FBF Podcasts production.